The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. So uh, again, this week we're in chapter 16. Last week we were in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel. And uh, we saw that it was the beginning of the end for the first king of Israel. Israel had gotten a king because they had begged God for a king. They said, like, they came to Samuel and said, we want a king like every other nation has. Uh, they're secure. They're, they're powerful. We see them growing. We see the king live in his palace and, it, and they, they're secure and comfortable. And we want a king like every other nation has. And so uh, Saul, they were looking for place really to be king. And he was the people's choice because he checked all the boxes that they were looking for. Samuel was tall. He was good looking. He was strong. He stood head and shoulders above everybody else in the nation of Israel. He was everybody's ideal of a king like every other nation had. It's like what you would put on the cover of Time magazine to be, this is the ideal king for Israel. But Saul's disobedience, we saw last week, made him unfit to be the king of Israel. It made him unfit to be the king of God's people. And so now what we're gonna see in this chapter is that God is gonna give his people his kind of king. God's gonna give his people his kind of king. We see in Acts that David is described as a man after God's own heart. God is gonna give the people a king after his own heart. And that's gonna become the focus of the rest of this book is David's path to kingship because it's a, really, he doesn't really become king until after this book is actually over, but the rest of the book is about his path to becoming king. And so today we're gonna see how David's kingship began when Samuel anointed him. Now the idea of anointing before we get any further in this, it's like sort of the, the core of this change of kingship, a new tradition that was very unusual and actually from history, it seems to be unheard of before this time. The, the prophet who heard God's word came to a man and poured oil upon his head and said, you are now by God's declaration, by the anointing that has been poured over you, you are now set apart as God's man to be God's king. And it also signified that God's presence is with you. We saw that with Saul, that whenever Samuel poured the anointing oil over his head that the Holy Spirit came upon Saul. The, the, that practice was an unusual thing. It set that person apart and endowed them with God's spirit. It was Samuel anointing Saul that made him fit to be the king of God's people. It wasn't any of Saul's stature or height or strength or warrior ability. It was the fact that Samuel had poured the anointing oil upon him and had set him apart. And then later, when Samuel, Saul disobeyed, God removed the anointing from Saul. And now Samuel is going to anoint the lowly, forgotten, lowest son of Jesse in a little hobunk town called Bethlehem, kind of the town I came from, Conway. Like, nothing really great. The lowest forgotten son, they forgot. I mean, you saw it in the text, right? They forgot he was even there, that he wasn't there. Like, oh, that kid, yeah, he's out watching the sheep. Now Samuel's gonna anoint the lowly youngest son of Jesse and that's what's gonna make him fit to be the king. So here's gonna be our, our big takeaway for this morning, all right? 
man, it is weird up here, like in this direction. It's, like, it's kind of like, man, it's throwing me off. Dale said, it's like, it's like being in Australia and like the toilets are flushing backwards. And like everything's just like, the, the language is the same, but it's all just slightly tilted. But here's, here's the big takeaway for us today. God provides and empowers the one he anoints. God provides and he empowers the one he anoints. And we're gonna break that up into three parts. We're gonna see, first of all, the need for the anointing. We're gonna see the qualification for the anointing. And we're gonna see the empowerment of the anointing. We're gonna see the need for the anointing, the qualification for the anointing, and the empowerment of that anointing. First of all, the need for the anointing. So the the passage started out as Keetra read for us very quietly. Sorry, Keetra, if I don't know what happened there, but how Samuel was grieving and God spoke to Samuel in verse one of chapter 16. How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Now fill your horn with oil and go and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, so Samuel says, all right, so if I do that, Saul is gonna see me. Uh, I've already said God has rejected you from being king and he's gonna see me traveling with my you know, flask of oil and he's gonna kill me to keep me from anointing the next king, his, his successor. He says, how can I go? If he hears it, he's gonna kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you. That's a, a cow, a young cow, and say, I've come to sacrifice the Lord. So that wouldn't be unusual. He would go to Bethlehem and uh, do a sacrifice and he consecrated all the men there, including Jesse and his whole household and pulled them all together. He was coming to anoint a king because, again, as I said before, Saul became king not because of his own accomplishments. He became king because he was anointed by the prophet Samuel. The king being anointed, and this is what Samuel is going to Bethlehem to do, to anoint the next king of Israel, the king being anointed by a prophet was a sign that, the, that Israel was God's people and God was the one in charge. God's saying there's no king that's gonna, uh, like by political power or political strength, take over my people. These are my people and I'm gonna appoint the king over my people. I'm in charge and he's saying all power and all authority over my people flows from me and not from any ability or accomplishment on your own. That's where the king was to get his authority and his power to be the ruler of God's people, not from his own ability or smarts or accomplishments or strength, but from God's presence and power with him. The fact that he was a man under authority and he was a man empowered by the spirit of God. So when Saul proved several times, actually, that he wasn't gonna stay under the authority of the true king of Israel, the Lord, when he proved that, then he was no longer fit to be king. And that's why Samuel told him in verse 23 of chapter, 20, of chapter 15, because you've rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord has rejected you from being king. Now this is interesting though, right? So, so Samuel in the last chapter tells Saul he's rejected from being king and Saul walks away and is anything seemingly different? 
The crown's still on his head. He controls the army. He controls the power. He's going back to his palatial mansion. He's, he's driving his Tesla. He's doing like, he's living the life. He is living the dream. He is in charge. Like nothing seems to have changed from the outside. He is still Saul and he is still in charge and he is still the king. He is in control of the deal. And that sort of kind of fits a pattern that we see in scripture where God deals out uh, the punishment, the just punishment for actions. And it takes a while for that to kind of play out. Remember when he told Adam and Eve that, the, that they said, like God said, whenever we do that, the day that we do it, we will surely die. But did they die on that day? They died spiritually, but they didn't physically die for years and years and years and years. They were living out the death that had been promised to them with the rest of their life. And that's really a sad place to be because Saul very well could have walked away from his time with Samuel and thought, hey, I beat the system. I'm okay. I'm still king. I checked my bank account, still kingly. I checked out my camel, still kingly. I checked out my palace, still kingly. I checked out my servants, still kingly. Maybe I had beat this thing and the next morning he gets up and nothing's happened. There's no lightnings come down. Like I'm still king. Maybe I beat the system and day after day, year after year, month after month passes and Saul still seems to be king. He still seems to be in in control. Maybe, Maybe he thought he had beat the system. But we see a breakdown that has started happening already in the nation of Israel. Because Saul's disobedience, the people of Israel are now left without the anointed, a true anointed king of Israel ruling them, who is under the authority of God and is empowered by the power of the spirit of God. And because of that, we can already see that unfolding in this first chapter. The fact that Samuel, this elderly prophet of God, who the Bible says that none of his words fell to the ground. So whenever he spoke on behalf of God, everything that he ever said came true. Samuel, who is gonna travel to anoint the next king, he's afraid that if Saul knows what he's really doing, Saul's gonna kill him, the prophet of God. Justice has already started to break down in the kingdom of Israel. Things are off kilter. It's like moving this room. Like, like, things are like still the same, but vastly different. Things are starting to break down at the core of things because the rightful, under authority, empowered by God, king of Israel, is not sitting on the throne. Everything is broken. It leaves the prophet fearing for his life. Justice and wisdom are broken. And the rest of Saul's life It's gonna be marked by selfishness and folly and torment even by evil spirits. And that leaves Israel in a terrible state without the anointed king of Israel over them. Israel was meant to be the hope of the world. When God gave Abraham the covenant, he said, I've I'm gonna use you to bless the nations. That was always Israel's position, to be a nation that would be so blessed by God that then would turn around and bless the nations around them that would showcase the joy and beauty and peace that it is to live under the rule and reign of God under a king who is under the rule and reign of God, who is empowered and set apart to God and empowered by his spirit to rule with his wisdom, under his authority, with his kind of power and strength. And now, not only is Israel left without hope, but the nations around them are left without hope. 
But here's the cool thing, is that Saul's disobedience didn't derail God's plan. Isn't that good? No matter how terrible decisions you and I make, nothing you can do, as bad and sinful and wrong as it may be, there is nothing that you or I can do that derails God's plan. God wasn't up in heaven saying, oh my goodness, the first king of Israel, he has messed it up. Oh man, I got a plan, uh, plan B, guys. You guys got any ideas? What are we gonna do now? He's let us down. No, this is God's plan from the beginning. He says, you want a king like all the other nations, I'll give you that king, but I got in my back pocket, here's my king. God said, I ha- what did he tell Samuel right off the bat? He said, I have provided for myself, in verse one, a king. I have provided for myself a king. He had been preparing a king for himself for years now, and now it's time to reveal him. Then we look at the qualification for this anointing. So, so he, he pulls all the, the people aside in, in Bethlehem. In verse six, when they came, he looked on Eliab. So Samuel looks at Jesse's oldest son. Samuel knows one of Jesse's sons is gonna be king, but that's all he knows. And he's standing there and Eliab walks through and he says what? Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Surely this is it. This is the guy. I mean, if it's one of Jesse's sons, this is already kind of crazy. We're in Bethlehem, we're in Conway. Like, and Jesse, he's like some you know, hick farmer out here and I'm out here and he's got his sons come before, but his first son, he's a tall, strapping, strong, good looking guy. And he's like, surely this is the guy the Lord has picked if he's picked one of Jesse's sons. And I love what God says next. He says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his outward or his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him for the, for why? For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance the Lord looks on the heart. When Samuel saw Eliab, his appeal was the same appeal as Saul's qualifications to be king, right? It says that he, he, he looked at him and he, and he said, oh man, this, look at his appearance. Look at his appearance. He looks kingly. He's got the look. You know what? When some people have the look, like that guy, they, he's got the look. That girl, she's got the look. She, they fit this role. They fit the job. He, he looks kingly. He walked in and he walked in like a king. He walked in. You know, some people who like, it doesn't matter where they work or what they do. They walk into the room, they walk into it like they own the room. That's the way Elliot walked in. It's full of self-composure, self-assurance. He walks in and he owns the room like a king. And Samuel's like, man, look at the way he carries himself. Look at how big and strong he is. Look at his training and his breeding. Maybe he had a conversation with him, we don't know. And he, and he talks to him and he's like, oh man, look at this guy. He's done some things. I've seen his resume. I've seen his education. This guy is the deal. Like surely this is the Lord's anointing, anointed one. Look at his personality. 
But God said, don't look on his outward appearance. And he said, don't look on his stature. Don't look on his oppressiveness. Don't look on his strength. Don't look at his education. Don't look at his accomplishments. None of those things qualify or disqualify anybody to be the Lord's anointed. Why? Because the Lord looks on the heart, not on the outward appearance. And then imagine David walking in the room. They said, oh, so Samuel's like, okay, it's none of these guys. Are, these, are you sure this is all your sons? Like, can you imagine like Samuel had to be sitting there for a minute saying, all right, God, I am not hearing anything. You usually speak to me and you said it's one of his sons and I'm now in here and it's none of these guys and this is getting awkward. What am I gonna do? And maybe this last ditch effort, he's like, are you sure this is all your sons? Like, like who would forget? Like, right? Like, oh, oh, yeah. And that's exactly what he says. Oh, yeah, well, there is the other guy. There's David. He's the runt. He's the poet. You know, he writes songs. You know, the skinny jean kind of guy. Uh, like, like, like he, he's out there. He's watching the sheep with his guitar and singing out there. He writes poetry. He writes poems. That's not, not the guy you're looking for. I, I guarantee you that much. And Samuel's like, "We're not going to do anything else until you bring him here." Imagine David walking in, <laughs> forgotten by his own family. Nothing impressive. Forget if you know anything about David's future. You just got to think about it right now. Who walks into this room? This young kid, probably a smaller guy. And it's this, even the description is kind of interesting, the way it describes him, isn't it? it? It says he walks in, and now he was ruddy. We think that either, means, that either means that he had kind of reddish hair or he had like a bronze kind of complexion. Or maybe freckle. We're not really sure, but it means like he's really cute, but you describe him as cute. That, that's really how like he, he walks in. He's not impressive. He's cute. Right, He walks in and he's like that and, and nobody thought, here's the thing to remember about David. Nobody thought from seeing him, this is an oppressive guy. He was for utterly forgettable even by his own dad. His daddy doesn't think that he should be presented before Samuel. What are his qualifications he meets none of the qualifications that Saul and seemingly Eliab had. He's not impressive in appearance or stature. But God sees a different kind of qualification. God says, I don't see as you see. Here's the way God sees qualification. David walks in and nobody thinks he's impressive. Nobody thinks this is the guy, but yet David is utterly qualified in God's mind to be his king. And here's how God sees qualification. Lowliness plus a humble heart. Lowliness plus a humble, believing heart. Together equals qualification in God's book. That's why God doesn't judge things the way you and I judge them. He looks on the heart. It's seemingly what disqualifies us that actually qualifies us. It's seemingly what disqualifies us that actually qualifies us in God's eyes. Are you weak and low? Feel like you don't bring much to the table? You feel forgotten maybe even by your own family? 
You wonder, do I have any purpose? Am I gonna ever achieve anything in life? Am I ever gonna do anything? Your lowly condition, your lack of talent, your personality issues, your poor health, your psychological conditions, your poor opinion of yourself, your broken home that you came from, your self-injury, your addictive personality, your sinful background, your current sinful state, all of those things, none of those are by accident. God had prepared for himself a king for himself in the lowly David who was forgotten. All those things are no accident and they are no impediment to God's plan for you and for your life. God doesn't have to jump over those things to use you. God uses you because of those things, because of your weakness, because of your brokenness, because of your sinfulness, because of your messed up family, because of your messed up self idea of yourself, because of your messed up composure, because of your messed up personality. God uses you not in spite of those things. He uses you because of those things because what qualifies you to be used by God? A lowly condition plus a humble, trustful, believing heart. When those things are recognized, when you recognize, man, God, I am not Eliab, I am not Saul, I am David, I am coming forgotten with no, nothing on my resume, nothing to check off all the barks. Nobody's thinking like, this person, this man, this woman has it together. They have great things going for them. When we recognize that, that is the lowly door that leads us to Christ. It's not the big giant door that leads us to Christ. It's the lowly door that leads us to Christ. It's the humble door. The difference between David and Saul wasn't about qualification. It was that David recognized his disqualification and he embraced it. He recognized his humble estate. Read his Psalms. It is full of his pleading for mercy and help. It was a humble seeking of all that is good in God alone and not any longer in himself. Now, how do you look at yourself? How do you look at yourself? Do, do, you, do you think that, that, that God has saved you in spite of who you are? Like he had to move around, jump over, go under, like to, in order to, to get to you in spite of like, man, I'm a really messed up, I did this, or I have this problem with my personality, or I have a real bad self-identity about who I am. Like that God, like sort of he tolerates you. That despite your overall stink, that he still kind of deals with you. Like, like I did with my daughter's diapers, my son's diapers. Like I love you in spite of what I'm doing right now. And I'm dealing with like that and I'm kind of holding their, their feet up like this and trying to get in there. I used like 18 of those wipey things. So I would just try to, like, I, I don't, I, I love you, but this is really, really gross. Sometimes we think God deals with us like that. At one time I was younger, I was about 18, 19 years old and I took my first transatlantic plane flight. We were going on a mission trip to India. And uh, it was a comedy of errors. We missed our flight in New York and we didn't think we were gonna make the next flight. And uh, I got, I, I finally end up, they said they, at the very last minute, they came out and said, we've got room for you six, come on in. And we, and we come inside and, and they sit us down in business class. 
Now, <laughs> if, I know we all walk past business class, and they, I mean, not some of you, but I, I, I'm one of the, I walk past business class and first class, and, and I wonder what it's like in that world. Well, now I know it is great. It is another world up there. I, I sit down, I'm 18, 19 years old, a kid from Conway, you know, like still wet behind my ears, and I'm like looking around, and the, the stewardess comes and offers me these warm towelettes to wipe my face and my hands so, so the, the mess of the airport can get off you now. She brings me a, a, a bowl of warm nuts and then offers me a mimosa. I don't, I don't, I'm 18 years old, I can't do But she offers me a mimosa and then brings me my, my menu to pick what I'm gonna have for each course of the meal in that flight. I'm like, I didn't know this is even possible. And this is years ago that they had, this is, this is a big deal at the time, but they had individual TV screens and you could play all the games you wanted and watch it. I'm like, this is crazy that you had a, a, a giant recliner that you could go all the way back. It was amazing, but I could not enjoy it for the first third of the trip because I kept thinking, Randy, you're an 18-year-old kid from Conway who grew up poor. Somebody's gonna come in here at some point and say, you know you don't belong here. You need to go back there. And I think I live life, I have lived life, a large portion of my life feeling that way. Feeling like I didn't belong, that someone's gonna come tell me you need to go back there. And maybe you live life like that. And you feel that God, you're sort of a coach Christian. God has me back here and coach. I'm just happy to be on the plane. I just barely made it. But God's like, hey, you need to sit back there. The special people up here. But it's, those quali- it's being disqualified that actually qualifies you. God has provided you for himself just as he provided David for himself. In your weak and in your lowly, in your sinful state, he designed it. He chose David not in spite of his poor qualifications, but because of them. And he chose you for the same reason. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29, one of my, maybe my favorite passage in all of scripture. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose. Hear the, hear the echoes? But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is lowly and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. David could not boast of anything in God's presence. He's provided you for himself. Just like David, a king or a queen, 1 Peter 1, 1 Peter 2, 9, but you, hear this to your heart this morning, but you are a chosen, a chosen, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That, 
Not so that people would look at you and say, aren't they great, but that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. How do you think about yourself? How do you think about others? Think of what Samuel thought when Eliab walks through. He's the oldest of Jesse's son, which is where the blessing always went in their culture, it always went to the oldest, always went to the oldest, except, except on the multiple occasions where God chose the youngest. Tom found the wise. Man's man, surely this is the Lord's anointed, but God says, no, I judge in a different way. I see things differently than you see them. But how do, how do we think about others? Oh, that person has it together. I, I'm intimidated being around them. That person, that person would make, have you ever thought this? That person would make a great Christian, right? Because they're so like smart and got this stuff together. They're popular. Like, man, that person would make a good Christian. They would just come to the Lord. Think of what they could do. Or maybe it's like, hey, I wonder if that cat could even be a Christian. Have you seen their life? It is a mess. It is a dumpster fire. But God looks on a totally different scorecard than you and I look at. It's a scorecard that is hidden. It's illogical. It's unlikely. And it's designed in such a way that he would be the only one who would get the glory for what he does through his anointed. But we forget it, don't we? We forget that it's the anointing that makes all the difference, not the one anointed. It's the anointing that makes the difference, not the one being anointed. And then we see the qualifications of that anointing, but look at, look at the empowerment that comes from the anointing. We start in verse 13, when Samuel uh, anoints David. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him. For this is he, that's the end of verse 12. And then verse 13, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers and the spirit of the Lord. So he anointed him, signifying, you are set apart to be the king of Israel. The Lord is with you and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now there's a cool story that comes after this in the chapter where now Saul, it's kind of a sad chapter, Saul, the anointing is gone from him, the Lord is no longer with him and a tormenting spirit comes to him. Almost like madness, really. And his counselors around him say, what you need is you need somebody to come and play soothing music that will help you. And he says, all right, find somebody. And one of them, verse 18, one of the young men answered, behold, I've seen the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent or wise in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me David. And so Jesse sends a donkey laden with bread, and he sends David, and David comes to Saul, and he does help Saul, and Saul loves him greatly. Now, here's what you have to see here. See this connection. We don't know how much time has passed between the beginning of this chapter and the second part of the chapter. The beginning of the chapter, David is so forgettable that whenever he, he, uh, Jesse calls his sons to him, he doesn't even think that Samuel would want to see David. He's absolutely and utterly forgettable and lowly. 
But now what's the description that we see of him? Look at the change that's come over him. He became a man of skill. He, he developed his God-given skill in as being a poet, being a, a songwriter, being a player of music so that he could play and sing skillfully in such a way to even be in the presence of a king and soothe the king who was being tormented by an evil spirit. He became a man of skill. So he became a man of valor. That's a man of upstanding courage. He became that way so much that people, he had a reputation now of that. He became a warrior. Just against God's image bearers and he worked successfully to push back that darkness around. He became a warrior. It says he became a person of good presence. So before, Eliab was the one who walked in and you say, wow, he's amazing. And now David has a, what's called a good presence, a pleasing presence to be around. And it says the most important thing that sort of like all of this kind of ends with that he carried the presence of God. The Lord is with him. Now look at that change. It's a change that even David's daddy would never have dreamed of. David goes from being the lowly last youngest son of Jesse forgotten to being a man of valor and skill, a warrior, who has a good presence and carries with him the presence of the Lord. Now, now what did that leave the people around him saying? Did it, did it leave them saying, man, that David, he was a diamond in the rough. We didn't see that, did we? Like he really grew up, huh? Like he was a late bloomer. How did we miss that? Or did it leave them saying, man, that anointing sure made a difference, didn't it? the Spirit of God came upon him, he sure changed and empowered David, didn't he? Who gets the credit? The Lord gets the credit. Not David. What could he do with you? What could the Spirit of God do with you? What if you, what could he do with you if you stopped trying to do it your own way, like Saul? What can he do with you if you stop trying to have your own way by your own power and your own ability like Saul? What if you stop trying to do things for your own glory and reputation like Saul? What if you embraced your lowliness and your weakness and your brokenness? What if you owned that fully and found the lowly door? What could God's spirit do with you that would leave people saying, man, I didn't see that coming. Their God must be amazing, made man. David was a God-made man. And that qualification to be the king of Israel, like to be the king of Israel, that lowly the king of Israel, after Saul and David through the line, each king would be anointed king. That, that was the whole point of the anointing of the king. It was to say, you need this. You need something, someone beyond yourself in order to... Uh, empower you and enable you in your weakness to be what God has called you and to be. 
You need the presence and power of God in order to be made whole. You need, you need, you need one who, like the king, was totally and absolutely set apart to God. You need that. You need someone who is completely obedient and under absolutely the authority of God. You need someone with skill and valor. You need a warrior. You need someone with wisdom and the presence and authority of God. You need a warrior. You need a poet warrior. You need a warrior who fights for justice and sings songs to the Lord as he does it. All through the lines, each king being anointed was a sign saying you need the presence and power of God in order to enable you to do what I've called you to do. It was for them to see and cry out for the anointed one to come, the anointed one. That's what Christ means, by the way. It's not Jesus' last name. It means the anointed one, the Messiah, the anointed one. David's heir who was to come was to come and he would perfectly obey the Lord. He would perfectly carry the presence and power of the Lord. He would, though he was God incarnate, would lower himself and take the low road. He would be completely obedient, a warrior, a poet warrior, and when you receive Christ, you receive his anointing in your weakness. Not in spite of it, but because of it. And to his glory alone. And it's that that makes you fit. How much of your effort and energy in your life if you're really honest with yourself, is focused on trying to make yourself fit. Trying to make yourself right. Trying to make yourself worthy. I'm probably not supposed to say this person's name in church, but I saw an uh, episode of the Comedians with Cars Getting Coffee with Jerry Seinfeld and Howard Stern. Howard Stern's worth like $650 million dollars. He said about 16 times in the interview that he considers himself the greatest radio broadcaster in history. But whenever he started opening up with Jerry, he said, I do this, I probably would not have done this if my dad would have turned off the radio and given me attention. I knew, my dad loved the radio and I knew if I could be on the radio, I would get his attention. How much of your energy and effort is driven to try to make yourself worthy? to try to make yourself fit. But yet Christ makes you whole as you accept your weakness. And it will make you a person of skill and valor and wisdom and most importantly, the presence of the Lord. Every single one of us in this room has the ability to live the kind of life that David lived, empowered by the Spirit of God, and be a man or woman after his own heart if we do that. This morning, if you're not a Christian, maybe you've been around church a while, maybe you're just checking it out, that's the path for you this morning. Accept your weakness and your sinfulness and your need of a Savior, the anointed one who came, 
if you are a believer, to dedicate yourself and rededicate yourself to own your weakness and your lowliness so that the anointed one would fill you and cover you with his anointing and presence in such a way that he gets the glory alone because God provides and empowers the one he anoints. Let's pray. Lord, I know and acknowledge that it's difficult to accept and embrace our weakness and our lowliness and our sinfulness. But would you give the power and the ability, the faith to embrace that, to own it? Maybe some of us, we need to confess that before you. Maybe some of us, we need to confess it with a brother or sister this morning. But God, would you take that weakness and would you turn that into the lowly door that leads us to all that you've called us to be and to do? Father, I ask that you would do it in the name for the glory and the fame and renown of Jesus the Christ, the anointed one. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.